Hi, I'm Megan Sykes. I'm a professor at Columbia University, where I'm the director of the Columbia Center for Translational Immunology. Today, I'm going to tell you about some of our research on taming and tracking the human allo response. <clears throat> so, while we've made great advances in the field of transplantation, uh, the success is still limited by, one, the complications of the drugs that we use to avoid rejections, and secondly, by chronic rejection, which remains a problem even in, with the use of optimal immunosuppression. So, in our field of transplantation, the induction of immune tolerance has become a major goal, because this state of tolerance would overcome both of these limitations. What do I mean by tolerance? Tolerance implies long-term graft acceptance without immunosuppressive therapy, but importantly, with an otherwise intact immune system that can recognize foreign antigens and, and protect one from infections. Successful tolerance induction, be, uh, really, in my view, uh, requires intentional, planned immunosuppression withdrawal, achieving tolerance in a high proportion of individuals. It's been known for some time that the rare person removing themselves from immunosuppression may not reject. The vast majority do. But there are examples of tolerance induction uh, through that, that rather uh, dangerous and inefficient process of immune suppression withdrawal. Um, I'm referring, when I say uh, tolerance induction is successful, to a process where it works in most people and is intentional. Okay, so how do we get to clinical trials of tolerance induction. Of course, it begins with experimental models. But if you look in the literature, you'll find actually hundreds or even thousands of models of tolerance in rodents. Uh, unfortunately, almost none of these have been successfully applied in humans. And there are a number of steps that we need to take before we go to humans, uh, because uh, if, if we're going to... If we think we have tolerance, we're removing the standard of care. We're removing the chronic immunosuppressive therapy that is otherwise used to prevent rejection. This is necessary if we uh, want to have a normal, normally function immune, functioning immune system. So that's why one of the main reasons why we want tolerance, so that we don't have to have that chronic immunosuppression. But if we're going to remove that standard of care, we need to know that it works. And this requires, first of all, in stringent rodent models, showing that it works. And that usually involves uh, extensively MHC mismatched uh, skin grafts, which are very difficult to get acceptance of. Uh, secondly, we need to have uh, other animal models. It's very difficult to go from a, a mouse to a human in withdrawing immunosuppression. Uh, we really need large animal models that are closer to humans. And thirdly, uh, it's desirable to have some experience with whatever uh, drugs or agents you're going to use in your tolerance protocol uh, in other clinical settings. As it happens, uh, the approach that we, we've, I and my colleagues have worked on for many years involving hematopoietic cell transplantation uh, and induction of mixed hematopoietic chimerism has come closest to meeting these criteria and has gotten into clinical trials. So, 
If we're going to use hematopoietic cell transplantation uh, to induce tolerance, we can't use it in the usual way that it's used, for example, in a patient with leukemia or lymphoma. In those settings, the transplant is of, of bone marrow or other hematopoietic cells is done after very heavy treatment of the recipient aimed at eradicating as many of the cancerous cells as possible. In a patient who doesn't have cancer, who needs an organ transplant, we can't justify doing such toxic treatments. Instead, we have to develop a way of preparing that recipient for their bone marrow transplant that has the capacity to re-educate their immune system and induce tolerance uh, that is far less toxic. It, it has to uh, not eliminate the recipient's bone marrow cells uh, so that if you fail to get engraftment of your donor bone marrow, uh, you still have a functioning uh, bone marrow and, and normal hematopoiesis. And nevertheless, this treatment has to be strong enough to overcome the very strong immune resistance in the recipient uh, to the donor. And we know we've succeeded in doing that if we achieve mixed chimerism. And what I mean by mixed chimerism is coexistence of donor and recipient hematopoietic elements. Uh, the donor ones uh, aren't rejected, uh, and so you see them in the circulation. And the recipient ones have not been killed off by the conditioning, and so you see them together with the donor cells. Now, um, I mentioned in my introductory lecture that graft-versus-host disease is a major complication of HLA mismatch and even matched he uh, hematopoietic cell transplantation. It has some benefit in treating in, in malignant diseases, but is absolutely an unacceptable complication to introduce in somebody who doesn't have a malignant disease but needs an organ transplant. So this is a big challenge. Uh, to cross HLA barriers, avoid GVHD, overcome the host resistance to the donor, and do all of this with minimal toxicity. It took many years um, for our groups at Mass General Hospital to uh, reach a point where we could actually try that. And uh, it, our, our pathway to clinical trials of tolerance induction using hematopoietic cell transplantation actually involved uh, rodent models, uh, shown on the left side of this slide, uh, some involved in uh, studies of treating leukemias and lymphomas that ended up bringing us to a mixed chimerism approach with non-myeloblative conditioning. Meanwhile, uh, our studies in rodents had shown that we could induce organ tolerance with a non-myeloblative regimen for mixed chimerism induction. And our studies in leukemias and lymphomas actually led us to an approach that we could try in patients because uh, in that setting, you can sometimes go directly from rodents to humans uh, because the, uh, the patients who will try an experimental protocol have failed all other uh, possibilities if they have a, a very advanced uh, malignant disease. And so we had the opportunity to try this mixed chimerism approach in some of these patients who, uh, in whom it was used as a platform for immunotherapy. However, on the organ transplantation side, we didn't go straight from mice to humans. We actually had a, a non-human primate model in the middle, which is very similar to humans in how it responds to transplants and was a very critical step in allowing us to do bone marrow transplants for tolerance induction in patients with no malignant disease. Uh, the protocols that we tried uh, at Mass General for inducing tolerance in these patients 
um, underwent several iterations. A total of 10 patients were uh, transplanted under these three protocols. Um, the first one, and these were all uh, supported by the Immune Tolerance Network of the NIAID. And uh, the first one uh, is shown here, and all of them have in common that they utilize non-myelative doses of cyclophosphamide, local irradiation to the thymus, uh, a monoclonal antibody against CD2 that is given to deplete the recipient and donor T cells in vivo, and then a combined kidney and bone marrow transplant on day zero. And the post-transplant immunosuppression has involved a calcineurin inhibitor for a period of 9 to 12 months. Um, the uh, second iteration of the protocol brought in some steroids for a very short period uh, after the transplant to avoid uh, a, um, an engraftment syndrome, as well as uh, treatment with a B-cell-depleting agent, rituximab, uh, to avoid antibody-mediated rejection. And the third iteration involved even more rituximab, uh, several treatments with it, uh, and a slightly longer period of steroid treatment, but with, was otherwise similar. Uh, this work has been published already uh, in these two papers shown here, uh, and I'll just very briefly summarize the clinical results. Out of 10 patients, seven were removed from immunosuppression from successfully for periods of years. Um, and their, their outcomes are shown here. These first four patients had the um, first two regimens uh, in the first ITN trial, and that first patient is now more than 14 years off immunosuppression, doing very well. Uh, this pa second patient is more than not eight years off. These other two patients had several years of no immunosuppression, but eventually returned to immunosuppression, uh, unfortunately, uh, due to uh, uh, a low-grade chronic rejection. In the second trial, um, where we added more uh, B-cell depletion to avoid this low, uh, very low-level antibody-mediated rejection uh, that led to these patients returning to immunosuppression, in the second trial, we added more rituximab, and these patients actually uh, are now more than seven years post-transplant uh, and doing very well without any antibody-mediated rejection. Now, I mentioned this term mixed chimerism, where the donor and recipient cells coexist uh, in the patient. And this is illustrated here for, uh, for these four patients in, in the second trial. And what you see is in multiple uh, bone marrow lineages, uh, lymphocytes, granulocytes, monocytes, uh, etc., we see a contribution of the donor uh, in the circulating population, uh, but only for a very short period of time, for a period of uh, one to two weeks. Uh, so, this is very transient chimerism, and um, it's very different than what we can achieve, for example, in rodents, where the chimerism persists forever. Uh, but we knew from our non-human primate studies and from some other studies in patients with malignancies that transient chimerism, when achieved with a kidney transplant at the same time, could lead to tolerance. So, in the lab, we've been studying what the mechanisms of this tolerance are. And one of the things that we've observed in the patients who got this treatment is that there's a market enrichment for what we call regulatory T cells among the T cells in that initially come back after the transplant. So, this slide here shows you the percentage of T cells in the CD4 lineage 
that have this regulatory cell phenotype over time post-transplant. And each type of symbol represents an individual patient. And what you see is that um, these percentages of regulatory cells in that first year post-transplant are very, very high uh, compared to the pre-transplant level, which you see here uh, is very, very low. It's normally a very small percentage of CD4 T cells, but it goes way up after the transplant, eventually comes down to normal over a period of about a year. Um, now, in, if you look at the actual absolute numbers of those, those regulatory T cells, you can see over here that they are, in fact, depleted at one week post-transplant, but that within a couple of weeks, they come pretty close to the pre-transplant baseline level. In contrast, the non-regulatory T cells, the conventional CD4 T cells, uh, here you see their pre-transplant values, and here you see post-transplant, they remain low for a very, very long time. And that explains why we see such a marked enrichment of the regulatory cell population among those CD4 T cells. And these are bona fide regulatory T cells because uh, FOXP3 is the um, transcription factor that is the master regulator of the, of the Treg program. And uh, demethylation of the, of the FOXP3 region in the genome uh, is a hallmark of a, of a bona fide Treg. And we can see here in this bottom plot that the level of TSDR demethylation actually uh, correlates very well with the percentage of regulatory T cells we detect. So these are really Tregs. Um, why are they so enriched? Well, <clears throat> it looks like there's a few things going on, um, but the main one uh, is probably that they are expanding uh, in the periphery after we deplete uh, the T cells, the, the vast majority of T cells. So it seems that they, uh, some of them are spared uh, from the depleting T cell antibody, and the ones that remain undergo a lot of proliferation. And we can see this here in this upper right plot, where we're looking at the percentage of these regulatory T cells that express KI67, which is a marker of proliferating cells. And you can see that it's way up at uh, one and two weeks post-transplant compared to baseline levels. Uh, so that, and this is something that happens uh, when you deplete lymphocytes, that the ones that remain undergo proliferation. So that's one of the major mechanisms of this enrichment. Well, what role do these Tregs play in the tolerance that we see in these patients? Well, we can look at this by looking at uh, alloresponses in, in vitro, uh, mixed lymphocyte reactions and cytotoxic T lymphocyte assays. And what we have found in all of our tolerant patients is that they become very hyporesponsive toward their donor. Uh, here we're looking at their proliferative response in red uh, to the donor and in blue to a third party uh, individual to, uh, that they're not tolerant to. You see that the response to the donor is markedly reduced. And this, this particular sample was taken one year after a transplant. But what you see over here is that when you remove the regulatory T cells, the Tregs, from that patient cell population and now measure the response to the donor, a response is revealed. So this indicates that those regulatory T cells were suppressing the anti-donor response. However, in the same patient, when we went back and did similar studies at eight, 18 months post-transplant, the result was a bit different. Now, you still see that this patient is hyporesponsive to the donor. You can't even see a red uh, symbol here because there's no response to the donor. But now, 
depleting the regulatory T cells doesn't really reveal any anti-donor reactivity. There's still very little response there, even though we've enhanced the response to third party by depleting Tregs. So this suggested to us that we no longer depended on regulatory T cells to see this donor-specific hyporesponsiveness at 18 months post-transplant, and that something else might be going on. And we hypothesized that maybe that large number of alloreactive T cells present prior to the transplant uh, had been deleted of those that recognized the donor. So to summarize these uh, functional assays, Tolerance in seven of seven cases in this study was associated with the development of donor-specific unresponsiveness in these in vitro assays. We saw regulatory T-cell enrichment in all of these patients after the transplant. And in some assays, we could see that those regulatory T-cells were playing a role in suppressing the anti-donor response. But when we looked late, um, more than a year post-transplant, we did not see a role for regulatory cells in suppressing that response in, in, in the longer term. Um, so this made us think that perhaps the long-term tolerance might be deletional. Okay, well, there's deletion is one possibility that the donor-specific T cells actually got eliminated. So here, uh, if we look, think of the red cells as the ones that recognize the donor, if they're deleted, they're actually gone from the immune repertoire after the transplant. But another possibility is that they're energic, meaning that they persist, but they simply don't respond when stimulated through their T cell receptor. They're in a state of energy. And functionally, with the kinds of assays that I've just told you about, there was no way to distinguish those two possibilities. Um, so we really wanted to find a way of distinguishing them and actually seeing what happens to alloreactive T cells. And this is a big challenge because uh, T cells recognizing a given set of alloantigens on an MHC mismatched donor uh, represent a very uh, large uh, number of, of cells and specificities. It's thought that 1 to 10 percent of T cells respond to a given donor. And this is thought to be due to recognition of thousands of different peptide MHC specificities uh, on an allogeneic MHC. Uh, and um, all the studies that have been done show that there's no particular predictable uh, dominant uh, immune response. And uh, so there's really no way to pick out clones that you can track over time with tetramers, for example. So the approach that we used um, was really facilitated by the development of a technology for high-throughput sequencing of the hypervariable region of the T-cell receptor beta chain, known as the CDR3. Um, and this is the, the part of the T-cell receptor that uh, is most specific for the peptide uh, uh, that, that is seen by that T-cell receptor. And it, this hypervariable re region is formed by the rearrangement of the V, the D, and the J segments of the T-cell receptor, along with N insertions that give it uh, additional diversity. And um, a commercially uh, available platform was developed uh, for actually uh, sequencing up to millions of these uh, unique uh, sequences simultaneously. And this led us to hypothesize that uh, high-throughput CDR3 sequencing of transplant recipients' donor-reactive T cells prior to a transplant would allow us to identify uh, the repertoire of, of, of TCRs, of clones, that recognize the donor's alloantigens, and that we could then 
carry out such sequencing after the transplant to track the fate of those T cells. Using this approach, uh, we actually succeeded in developing a method for tracking uh, a patient anti-donor T cell response and uh, obtaining evidence for clonal deletion as a mechanism of tolerance in the patients that I've been speaking about. And what this assay involves is taking uh, patient uh, lymphocytes, uh, whole PBMCs, labeling them with a CFSE dye, which is a fluorescent dye that dilutes each time a cell divides. So the level of CFSE staining is a marker of how much a given cell has, has divided. And stimulating those in a co-culture for six days uh, with donor uh, PBMCs that have been irradiated so they can't divide, and also labeled with a different dye, a violet dye. Co-culturing for six days, collecting the cells, and specifically sorting the recipient, the responder cells uh, that have divided, uh, those that have diluted their CFSE dye, and separately sorting on a, on a fax sorter CD4 and CD8 cells of that recipient uh, that have divided in response to donor antigens. And um, what we did is then subjected each of these populations, these divided cell populations, to high-throughput sequencing of the T-cell receptor, CDR beta, CDR3 region, and also did the same thing on CD4 and CD8 cells from the unstimulated T-cell population of the, that patient. And this is all prior to the transplant. And then we can actually define a, a, a sequence as alloreactive donor reactive, if, there, if it's expanded more than five-fold in this mixed lymphocyte reaction uh, uh, compared to its frequency in the unstimulated population uh, shown over here. Um, so this, uh, this is a way of identifying a repertoire, a, a set of T cells that we call a fingerprint of the uh, anti-donor response. And this is what, when we developed this assay, we, we uh, tested it on our tolerant patients. And what we found was that in all three of the tolerant patients who we studied, there was a significant, a statistically significant decline in the frequency of donor-reactive CD4 and CD8 cells in the circulation over time after the transplant. And we saw this in all three patients compared to the pre-transplant level. We also had one patient in this trial who failed to achieve tolerance, who got the same treatment, uh, but rejected the kidney after the uh, immunosuppression was withdrawn. And what you see here is that this patient did not show any significant reduction in the frequency of anti-donor clones in the circulation. So it suggests that this method actually uh, distinguishes the tolerant from the non-tolerant patients. We've also tested this method on patients who don't get a tolerance-inducing regimen, but who just get a kidney transplant uh, with conventional immunosuppression. And some of our typical results are shown here. Um, interestingly, we don't see any reduction. These are two different individuals, uh, two different recipients, and looking uh, at the frequency of donor-reactive clones over time. Uh, here's pre-transplant, here's post-transplant. You can see that in both of these patients, there's a statistically significant increase in the number of circulating donor-reactive CD4 clones after the transplant, showing you the stimulation 
of the immune response by the by the transplant. So that helps to validate this this assay as showing us something very biologically uh, meaningful. And what we were able to conclude from this study is that high-throughput deep CDR3 sequencing of recipients' donor-reactive T-cells pre-transplant enables identification of a specific set of donor-reactive T-cells. And these donor-reactive clones can then be tracked in the post-transplant period to tell us something about what's going on uh, immunologically. And our, our studies uh, indicate that we are identifying biologically relevant T cells uh, with this pre-transplant MLR because their frequency goes up in a conventional transplant recipient after the transplant. And our data suggests that in the tolerant patients who get combined kidney and bone marrow transplantation, deletion of donor reactive T cells is a long-term mechanism of tolerance. And in studies I didn't have time to go through, this deletion seems to be the result both of global T-cell depletion with the conditioning and specific exposure to the donor antigens. In contrast, expansion of circulating donor-reactive clones is detected in conventional transplant recipients. And so far, this deletion analysis has outperformed the functional assays that I referred to early um, uh, because the functional studies actually showed donor unresponsiveness in the patient who failed tolerance in addition to those who succeeded, uh, suggesting that that patient uh, was demonstrating energy, at least under the conditions of our in vitro assay, whereas this deletional assay actually distinguished the tolerant from the non-tolerant uh, patient. Okay, I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about how this uh, TCR tracking method can also be used to better understand what's going on uh, within an allograft. And uh, this study actually involves uh, patients who receive intestinal transplants. And at our center uh, at Columbia, our patients are actually uh, followed by surveillance biopsies of the intestinal allograft through a stoma that is created at the time of transplant because the symptoms of rejection can be quite nonspecific. And uh, doing these surveillance biopsies is a way of making sure uh, that we're on top of uh, a rejection if it does occur. So it's looked at histologically. So um, this approach has actually given us an opportunity to look not only in the circulating cell populations of these patients, but also at what's going on in the graft biopsy specimens in real time. And we've taken advantage of this um, to uh, look at, within the graft, at the alloreactive T cells uh, that we've identified with the method I just spoke about. So just to give you a bit of background, um, intestinal transplant outcomes are, are, are not uh, uh, as, as good as we would like them at this point. And there's a lot of rejection that occurs, and particularly in patients who get intestinal transplants alone. Some patients don't just get an intestinal transplant, they get a liver transplant with it because their liver has failed for uh, a variety of reasons, often due to chronic TPN uh, used to treat the intestinal failure. Um, But what you see in this slide is that the patients who get multivisceral transplants, liver, pancreas, stomach, and and everything along with the intestine, actually have lower rejection rates than patients who get intestines alone. So we uh, hypothesize that this might have to do with the uh, interplay of graft-versus-host and host-versus-graft reactivity 
uh, in, in these patients. Now, I should say that the intestine comes with a very big load of lymphocytes, and it's known that intestinal transplantation can cause graft-versus-host disease. Um, so we, we've looked at this in our patients and uh, hypothesized that, in fact, lymphocytes from that graft may go into the circulation, and that may be a marker of patients who uh, won't have rejection, uh, and this can occur without graft-versus-host disease. And in fact, when we investigated this hypothesis, it turned out to be the case. What we found in a lot of these patients, and particularly those who got the multivisceral transplant shown with the circles, we saw very high levels of donor chimerism in the circulation, spontaneously, without any bone marrow transplant. And most of these patients did not have graft-versus-host disease. In 14 patients shown here, eight showed this mixed chimerism in the circulation, but only one had graft-versus-host disease, and it was very mild and self-limited. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, many patients did not have this macrochimerism, and uh, we define macrochimerism as more than 4% donor T cells in the circulation at its peak. And it's most commonly the patients getting intestinal transplants alone, shown with triangles, did not get macrochimerism. But what was striking is this association down here. We observed that the patients who have this macrochimerism, as we've defined it, have much lower graft rejection rates than those who don't have macrochimerism, consistent with the hypothesis that we started out with, that this macrochimerism uh, may uh, protect the patients from rejection and can occur without graft-versus-host disease, as we've seen. Now, as I mentioned, we also study the graphs, and we can do flow cytometry with multiple parameters to actually look at the replacement of donor cells by the recipient within the graft. And we can look at all sorts of different subsets uh, of cells within those uh, mucosal biopsies over time. And this is just an example of one such biopsy where we're looking at different lymphocyte subsets uh, and we have specific markers uh, that th this antibody that, uh, that goes up on the y-axis distinguishes recipient cells, whereas those that are negative for that antibody are donor-derived. So already you're seeing mixed chimerism in this intestinal graft. And what we noticed is that uh, there was a highly variable rate of replacement of the donor T lymphocytes that come in that graft uh, by recipient T cells. Uh, from patient to patient, and that there was an association with rejection and development of donor-specific antibodies uh, with more rapid replacement by the recipient. So this, this part of the slide is showing you the rate at which the, the percentage of recipient cells in these different T-cell subsets. And you can see that it's quite high quite early on. Uh, in these patients who undergo rejection. Each line is a different patient. In contrast, patients who don't have rejection or have a DSA-negative rejection, the rate of replacement of donor T cells by the recipient within the graft is very slow. Very interesting. And this uh, part of the slide on the right um, just represents this in a different way, making the same point. So, what, what's going on here? It looks like uh, donor cells appearing in the blood and recipient, cell, recipient T cells not replacing the donor cells in the graft is associated with less rejection. 
Well, our original hypothesis was that, in fact, all of this is reflecting a balance between the graft versus host response caused by T cells in the graft and the host versus graft response, uh, which is a systemic immune response. And using this T cell receptor tracking method that I just spoke about, we could actually look at this in both directions, in the graft versus host and host versus graft directions. So this is the same assay that I mentioned uh, earlier, and now we're doing it in both directions on pre-transplant donor and recipient cells to identify the GVH and the host versus graft T cell repertoires. And now we can interrogate these biopsy specimens uh, for these, these clones, and what we found was quite striking. In the early period post-transplant, uh, particularly in those patients who have slow replacement of their graft T cells by the recipient, there's a marked expansion of graft versus host reactive T cells within the graft. It's, they're much more frequent than what we see in the uh, lymphoid tissue prior to transplant, for example, shown in the black bars. So there's a huge expansion of GVH reactive CD4 and over here CD8 cells uh, in the graft compared to what was in the donor uh, lymphoid system. And this was interesting, and we wondered why that was. Our um, analyses, our um, flow cytometric analyses, included analyses of the antigen-presenting cell populations in the graft. And what we found was, in contrast to T-cell replacement rates, which were extremely variable, uh, as I showed you, patients with rejection tended to have rapid replacement of T-cells by the recipient, whereas those without rejection had slower replacement. In contrast to all that, all of the patients showed quite rapid replacement of antigen-presenting cells, of myeloid cells uh, with a dendritic cell phenotype by the recipient. This one is at day 16. Uh, almost all the APCs are recipient-derived, whereas the T cells are still mostly donor. There's very few recipient ones. Um, so that was quite a uniform finding, early replacement of donor APCs by the recipient. And that could explain this expansion of graft-versus-host reactive cells in the graft. They're having recipient antigens presented to them on these recipient APCs that enter the graft, expanding this GVH response. And we think this is very protective. Uh, we have additional studies that I don't have time to take you through, um, but that GVH response uh, also goes into the circulation, contributing to the macrochimerism. The other thing that we can see uh, with this technique, we can interrogate the biopsies for host versus graft clones. And what we see is something that hasn't been shown before. During a rejection of a human allograft, there's a huge enrichment of host versus graft alloreactive T cells uh, within those grafts. And that may be obvious, but there's some dogma um, from the literature that most T cells infiltrating a graft during a rejection are, are bystanders, they're nonspecific. That is clearly not the case here. Uh, a very high percentage of these T cells uh, during a rejection are host versus graft reactive as defined by our TCR tracking method. This goes down as the rejection resolves, but it's still uh, an enrichment for those host versus graft cells persists uh, long term in these patients, and we think they may pose a constant risk for rejection. So I'll end here with a summary. 
Um, we have found that there's a direct correlation between early rejection and accelerated replacement of donor T-cell populations in the graft by recipient T-cells that look like those in the circulation. They have a, a blood-like phenotype. Um, host versus graft clones predominate among those host T-cells within rejecting grafts. They persist at lower lo- levels long-term. And what I didn't show you is that they change their phenotype long-term. They look more like tissue-resident lymphocytes, and they seem to seed the entire gut. And we think these pose a constant threat of rejection. Uh, Thirdly, in contrast to the highly variable replacement rate of donor T-cells by the recipient in the gut, antigen-presenting cell replacement is uniformly rapid. And finally, uh, we think these rapidly immigrating recipient APCs are driving the local expansion activation of GVH-reactive T-cells coming with the graft, and that these may actually control the host versus graft-reactive clones, uh, curbing rejection uh, and replacement of donor T-cells by the recipient within the graft. So I'm going to end there. Um, Obviously, uh, I've talked about a lot of different uh, studies, and it's involved a huge number of people, um, both uh, at Columbia uh, and uh, originally at Mass General, where we did the clinical trials of of tolerance induction. And uh, the intestinal transplant uh, studies have involved many people in the lab, uh, but also on the clinical side as well. So thank you very much for your attention. I'll stop there.